Hello, and welcome to our Bodies, Our Voices podcast. We're your hosts, Becca and Joanna. We are two women in our 30s, and we interview individuals and experts on topics related to fertility, family building, career, exercising our voices, and more. Our guest today is Dr. Madeline Katz. Madeline is a psychologist who specializes in maternal mental health. She sees individuals and couples in her private practice in San Francisco and online during COVID-19. And she also offers support groups for choice moms and those going through fertility treatments. In our episode, we chat with Dr. Katz about the many impacts on mental health that occur through the family building journey. We also learn about choice moms and how Dr. Katz helps build community and support women who are considering having a child on their own. Madeline, thank you so much for joining us this evening. To start off, can you introduce yourself and tell us a bit more about the work you do in mental health and in particular reproductive mental health? Sure. Yes. And thank you both for having me. I have a private practice in San Francisco, which means that I work for myself. My specialty is in maternal mental health, and that really starts with family planning. I do both individual and couples psychotherapy, and I also do consultations and evaluations for families using third party. And third party is when you need a third party to help build your family. So that might look like sperm donation or egg donation or gestational carriers. What are some reasons why a patient might be referred to you? Primarily, they're referred to me because they're already experiencing some challenges getting pregnant and they're having a particularly hard time managing the adjustment to that experience and the psychological impact. These treatments are really stressful and they provoke a wave of emotions, depression, anxiety. In some cases, especially when there's multiple pregnancy loss, it can bring up a lot of trauma, past trauma and current trauma. So those are the the big ticket items why people are referred to me. I will see people for one-offs when they need a consultation. And that's a one-hour meeting where we talk about the implications of using third-party donors. And for people who aren't familiar, can you talk a little bit about When you say treatment as part of mental health care, what does that mean? How are you working with patients to help deal with this trauma, deal with challenges they have? For me, it looks like weekly psychotherapy. So I'll see people for general psychotherapy to work on issues with relationships or anxiety and depression. When it's infertility, it looks pretty similar. I'll meet with somebody for an hour every week for a couple weeks to a couple years to indefinitely. It's about building a relationship with the therapist, and it happens over the course of their fertility journey or their their family journey. Are there ever instances when someone might reach out prior to experiencing challenges with their fertility journey or family building journey? It's more rare in my case. People know that I work with infertility, but I will get some referrals for people who are having a hard time deciding whether or not to have a family and how they can do that. So for example, I have a couple right now who have not been on the same page of whether or not to pursue having a family and should they pursue it, they are going to need to use a gestational carrier. And we spend all of our sessions talking about how to navigate this, both the decision to have a family and what it would be like to use a surrogate to do that. To the degree that you are able, what are some other common considerations that people might bring up when they're debating whether or not they should start a family? The people I see are usually in their 30s when they're having this discussion. Maybe that's a part of being in the Bay Area or in a city. But at this point, they're talking about their age. They're talking about their financial stability. They're talking about whether or not they'll need to have treatment. Sometimes that is the the showstopper for a couple. They don't want to pursue that. Sometimes their relationship doesn't feel stable. and They want to make sure that they're going into this to have a family, not to save their marriage or the relationship, but because this is really what they want for the both of them. The reason I ask is because we've been talking to couples who are in the midst of their pregnancy or fertility journey right now. And one of the common themes that we've been hearing from a lot of these couples who most all of them are in their mid-30s is that the moment in time to have a child or start their family building journey was a big consideration and conversation. And a lot of the things that they talked about were that they were so busy having fun. Their career was taking off. A couple talked about wanting to be able to go to music festivals and not worry about whether or not they should you know, abstain from drinking or just taking the precautions and having the lifestyle set up that really leads to having a healthy pregnancy. So this seems to be a common theme for a lot of people when they're considering the first steps. 
couples in general, Joanna, at this time in their life are considering their lifestyle and whether or not they want to give that up. But I do think that is a little bit of an effect of living in a city. I grew up in San Francisco, but I went to school in Ohio. And a lot of my peers in Ohio got married and had kids in their early 20s right after school. My peers in the Bay Area started in their 30s. And so there is this lifestyle choice that does take more consideration. And at the time that they're in their 30s, that's when people really start to notice fertility challenges also. So they're faced with more variables to consider. It's really funny that you mentioned that biography fact for yourself. I actually <laughs> lived in Ohio and moved to San Francisco from there. Oh, really? <laughs> and one of the things that I noticed, because I moved from San Francisco to Ohio in my mid-20s, is that I felt like I gained 10 years on my life. Everyone in my community in Ohio was settling down, getting married, in fact, starting to have families. And when I moved here, it was like I had regressed back to when I had just graduated from college. Related to that, Madeline, one of the things you and I have spoken about before that I found really striking is as a mental health professional, you've expressed that often patients or clients come to you when things get really hard or when they really don't know how to handle their own situations, but that the types of conversations or the way that you help this couple or other couples navigate these choices is actually so beneficial and that so many more people could benefit from that. So I'm curious how you think about ways in which couples can learn about what conversations they should be having or other ways to navigate some of the challenges around the family building journey, either if they can't access a psychologist or maybe aren't sure, is it time to reach out to a professional yet? It's such a hard question to answer for couples. And where I would point them is to start to look at their own families of origin and what their parents and what their siblings have taught them about what a family looks like. So often this is where people get stuck. They had a difficult childhood or they saw their parents fighting or there was unhappiness in the home, which gives them pause to really start their own family. There's a lot of different exercises couples can do together to explore how their histories are impacting their current way of thinking. And that's really what we do in therapy for any issue people are having as we look at their formative experiences. In a similar vein, something I'm curious about is this theme has also come up about people really using their own family of origin as their their framework for what they believe their family could be or what they certainly do not want their family to be. So I'm wondering if you find any common misconceptions or common shifts that people can make around, hey, you know, the family that I grew up with is not the family that I necessarily need to create. Are there any common mind shifts that you think are helpful for people to consider when they are thinking about their own family? Another common reason why people go to therapy in the first place is to not turn into their parents, whether it be their mother or their father. A misconception is that they will turn into their parents or that they already have and they need to do something differently in order to raise healthy children. That would be the, the largest theme that I see. The traumatic experience in childhood, though, is another. People who don't have strong relationships with their parents are usually turned off from having children. They're worried that they're going to replicate something similar. Children who come from abusive families or families of divorce also give pause. One of the other topics that I'd love to discuss is we've talked a lot about that process of coming and becoming ready to have a family and start mm -hmm. that journey. And I know Joanna and I have spoken with a number of people around this feeling like, there's this whole buildup and it's really stressful of thinking of how do you get to that point. And then there's people who get totally blindsided with infertility issues, which we alluded to. Can you talk a little bit about some of the psychological impact of fertility challenges and why that might be particularly challenging for people maybe who are used to working really hard and seeing results of their work and what you can do as a therapist to help people navigate and get through periods of challenge with fertility? In my experience, one of the biggest causes of mental health problems in people who are struggling with infertility is what we call unexplained infertility. Most people want answers to why things are the way they are. And sometimes we get answers like low ovarian reserve or PCOS. And other times the answer is, I don't know, with a shrug. And so for people who are used to solving their own problems like you mentioned, Rebecca, with their intelligence or with money or effort, other resources, a diagnosis of unexplained infertility, or I don't know, it feels like an insurmountable challenge. I usually see people 
who are more type A, who are used to getting exactly what they want in life because they work hard, struggling with not being able to get pregnant. It causes a significant amount of stress and anxiety, sometimes depression. And there's a study that a lot of my peers like to quote from, there were two studies, done, one in 93 and 2004, and they looked at the comparison between patients who struggle with infertility and found that they had the same amount of stress as patients who experienced cancer diagnoses and cardiac issues, which we wouldn't expect. Cancer seems much more traumatic than infertility, but in fact, people experience them in very similar ways. The second part of your question, how do I work with people who are struggling with not being able to control their fertility? There are common feelings, right? The lack of control, the isolation people have from their community, not being able to connect with friends because their friends are getting pregnant or having baby showers or onto their second or third kid. They might have difficulty focusing on other aspects of their life, work, exercise, their relationship. I mean, I could go on on the common issues that people struggle with infertility have, but because everyone is such a unique individual and their own personal histories, as we discussed, and ways of seeing the world is individual to themselves. There isn't a one size fits all for how to work through this in therapy, which is actually why I love doing what I'm doing. It's not prescriptive and there's no magic pill, but we have to meet clients where they are um, and with what they bring into the room. And I like to help people focus on the meaning behind their need to control. I think that's a good starting place. So one thing I might ask is, what does it mean to them that they cannot control this process? And then we'll go from there. That's really helpful. Another thing I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on is I know when I was starting to look into topics related to mental health and infertility, there's some literature pointing out that people's sense of self and identity is deeply tied into their family building journeys and their ability to have babies or not. That was fascinating to me because it was a really new concept. I'd love to hear kind of your thoughts on helping people with identity and maybe crises of self. Yeah, that's a good one. I actually didn't experience that myself. So it's been interesting for me to work with people who who have had more of an identity crisis. I never wanted children. And so when I got to the family building stage, it was kind of the inverse identity crisis. But a lot of people are raised, men and women, assuming that they're going to have a family and assuming their family is going to look pretty similar to theirs in terms of number. If you were one of three children, you assume that you're going to have around three children as well. On top of that, our society really pounds into us this family unit and what that looks like. It's a social construct in some ways. So we get it from our own upbringing and we get it from the pressures of society. And when we struggle to achieve that narrative, or if if we can't achieve that narrative, if fertility treatments aren't working and we have to look at a different route, it can really throw off our sense of self. These are ideas and ideals that we have internalized from a very young age, very young. Toddlers and young children will start to internalize this as they identify with their own mothers. The narrative of a 30-year-old is going to look different than the narrative of a 20-year-old who can't get pregnant. By the time we reach our 30s or 40s and we're considering having a child, it is something we've been thinking about for decades and decades. And it wasn't ever a thought of that we might struggle to get there. That was super helpful. Thank you. So Madeline, I know one of the areas that you specialize in is choice moms or women who choose to have children on their own. Mm -hmm. A big part of our goal through this podcast is to empower women with more information about their choices. And we noticed that the topic of choice moms just really isn't discussed that often. So we'd love to hear from you first, just defining what are choice moms and some of the factors that women may consider to decide to have a child on their own. Historically, they've been referred to as single mothers by choice. I've started using the term choice moms because it removes the signifier of being single, which is not what the choice is in this case. The choice that these women are making are to become mothers, not to be single. At least that's true of the population that I'm working with. So I've moved away from single mothers by choice or SMC and towards choice moms or choice mamas. I have a couple groups that I run of choice moms, and these groups are for women who are thinking about becoming mothers or in the process of becoming mothers. They're in treatment. And we've spent a good amount of time talking about the social and psychological implications of becoming a choice mom. But I do want to emphasize that the choice that they're making is not to be single. A lot of these women would love to have partners. But by the time they get to their late 30s or early 40s, the choice they feel like they need to make is whether or not to move forward without a partner. And to get to that place, they consider 
a few things. Their age is a big factor. The number 40 comes up a lot in our groups. Their resources, you know, as a single parent, they need to consider if they can afford to have a child, especially in the Bay Area. One income is very difficult to raise a child on. They consider how much family support they have, both in terms of will their families stigmatize their choice in becoming a choice mom? Will their families be there to babysit and help raise the kid? Will they participate as a larger family unit? Similar with their community, does their community support them? Do they have friends around who can help? And they really consider their future. If they do decide or choose to be without a partner for the rest of their life, what does that look like without a child? And is that something they can see themselves being happy with or not? Are there any characteristics that are similar across the women that you support as choice moms? Or are they women from all different types of backgrounds? That's a hard question to answer. I can speak to the people who I see and I can guess as to what that means for the general population, but there are systemic issues that prevent women from being able to make this choice. Access to fertility treatment is one, that's a big one, and access to mental health is a, a second. And so I am typically seeing people who are very privileged and high-resourced and successful individuals. Those are the people that can afford to do this. From a personality perspective, they're just incredible women. It's very rare to have a group discussion where somebody doesn't acknowledge the privilege that they have to be making this choice in some capacity or another. They're all motivated. They're very thoughtful. They're courageous. They're kind to each other. They're usually pretty social as well. Becoming a choice mom is something that I considered a few years ago. And I was fortunate enough to have a mentor in my life who is a choice mom and um, a professional woman. And through observing you know, her life and circumstances, it made me really think that maybe that wasn't going to be a choice that I pursued. And part of that was just because of the community and landscape of San Francisco. And so I'm curious, have you noticed either in the clients that you serve or just in your professional community, are there environments or communities that are better set up to support choice moms? I actually think cities are the most appropriate place to be a choice mom because there are more resources here. What's harder is that it's expensive and that is a huge barrier. And it's not just the choice moms, but couples as well. Having families, I see a lot of people moving to the suburbs once they have their family, but they stay in the city to make their money and to use the fertility clinics and then they they move out. But it's much more isolating to live outside of a city and and choice moms need community. They need people to rely on. I had a client in one of my groups who I loved the phrase she used. She said, who are your board of directors? You need a board of directors if you're going to make this choice. So find out who your people are, write a list, tell them that they're on the board and and use them. And that's much harder to do if you're not in a dense well-populated area. So I, both, you know, there's pros and cons, but I do think a city, there'll be more resources. Something that has crossed my mind quite a bit over the years as someone who's dated men of varying different races is some of the challenges that come with potentially having a child in an interracial partnership. And I have certainly noticed in friends' relationships coming to an inflection point and deciding to separate or break up because of the realities of raising a child who might be biracial in our world that is still having a lot of challenges with equality and acceptance. It just feels too much to bear, in addition to all the other considerations that we've talked about. I'm curious if you ever work with patients around this issue. Actually, my choice moms have discussed this quite a bit. They are in the position of choosing sperm donors of any race and cultural background. And the women of color pay attention to whether or not they want a Caucasian person to have a more mixed race child and or to have a donor who is the same cultural background as them. And one of the considerations that they make is who would I have chosen as a partner? So working with one Asian American woman who knows that she's attracted to white men. And if she has a partner in the future, it'll likely be a white man. And so maybe she's going to choose a white donor. On the flip side, we have white women who are considering a donor, uh, a man of color, and really have to stop and pause and consider, am I prepared to teach this child about their culture, about their ethnicity and, and their origins? And it's a real come to Jesus for a lot of people. It mirrors in a way people who are turning towards adoption instead and who want for a child will extend to any child regardless of their background. But there are there are challenges in raising a child whose 
ethnicity is different than your own. And parents really do have to take responsibility for being able to have those conversations with their children and to do their due diligence to incorporate them in their communities. That is where I see it show up most in my practice. And to be honest, parents or intended parents are giving this a lot of thought. I think it might not be given as much thought if socially we weren't so separated and there was more support and communal feeling around this. Could you talk a little bit about what types of questions or considerations you might encourage someone to think about if they're deciding to have a donor or potentially have a partner who's outside their own ethnic background? I'm not sure which is easier, which conversation is easier. And the reason I ask is because just to be fully transparent, I know a lot of women of color who date white men. And there seems to be this almost like blissful ignorance until the moment that the relationship gets to the next stage of becoming more serious, talking about marriage, or, you know, maybe even after marriage, really starting to seriously talk about having a family that a lot of times, often these white men will say, I didn't realize I was going to have a child of color. And that's something that I don't know if I'm prepared for. And going back to what you were mentioning earlier, sometimes we fail to really think deeply um, about all the implications of starting a family. You know, people who maybe had a traumatic family background or maybe came from a family that experienced divorce or something other that is making them question their ability to parent. And I've seen that question come up a lot in uh, relationships that I've observed where either a parent, a prospective parent is thinking, I don't know if I have the life experience or immediate skills in order to create the loving, caring, supportive environment for this child. I think the fact that somebody would even have that fear points to the fact that they're thinking about it. And that's a really good starting place. They at least have the awareness to know that they need to do their homework and really consider what it would be like to raise a child who is mixed race. It is a really difficult conversation. These conversations need to happen very early and very often in a relationship when you are dating someone from a different race and ethnicity. I would say this for people who are dating within their community that the conversation of whether or not to have children should come up early. Nobody wants to waste their time. Nobody in their 30s wants to waste their time, for sure. So why not have these more difficult conversations very early on? I can imagine how shocking it would be to hear from a man that they didn't know their child was going to be black. How could they have missed that one? But it's not just on them, right? Why aren't these conversations happening between the two people? Yeah. And I think the thing that often comes up is that I didn't fully realize the social implications of that. I didn't fully realize that, you know, I might be walking with my child and someone might assume that they're not my child. And this happens a lot with people who are using third party too, is whether they're having an egg donor or a sperm donor, or even if it's your own egg and sperm, your children might not look like you. And people are really nosy and they are going to make comments that are inappropriate and boundary crossing, regardless of how you came to have your child and who you're having your child with. And it's for these reasons that armoring your partner, yourself, your child with the language to speak about where you come from and who you are from a really early age is going to be an empowering reparative experience and not further stigmatizing. I think the fear a lot of people have when they're thinking about raising a mixed race child is, are they going to suffer in the same way that I suffered? Are they going to feel ashamed by the community as I have or different? And what I've been telling parents that I work with right now is that the difference that they're afraid of needs to be turned into more of a celebration. Why are we afraid of their difference? Why are not why are we not showcasing their difference? One thing that comes up that I think is interesting is earlier we spoke about community and I think this is an example where community is also really important. My husband and I have dear friends who wanted a third child and ended up adopting. They are white and Jewish and they have two biological children who are ethnically Jewish and their daughter who they adopted is black and they live in a really mixed race community on the East Coast. And I've admired watching how they really handle these discussions. The mom is very conscientious about a lot of these things and is really good at having these conversations, but they've also been really intentional about their community and making sure that they have a diverse friend group and that their daughters exposed to women of color who are friends and making sure that they have diversity also in their friend group. And I think it's been really good. They're really intentional and having a lot of conversations from the time she's very young and helping being open and and explain things. But they've also struggled when she asks a lot of questions or gets upset. And, you know, I think one thing I'm hopeful for is with what's going on right now with the Black Lives Matter movement, 
it was really heartening today just to see the New York Times book list of so many people. And I think Joanna posted this, but some of the top books are all the different books on race and that there's been such a push. I'm in almost every mom's group on Facebook because of my prior job. And it's a constant topic. And there's so many book recommendations. And these are conversations that are going to become more mainstream, hopefully. One of the things that parents and mothers, but parents in general can do for their children to help with this larger issue is to read children's books to their kids that show people from different ethnicities and cultures. There needs to be more books like that out there. There are very few that have children of color, but why aren't those on everyone's bookshelves? I, for one, am always the person bringing the diverse books to the baby shower. So, (laughs) (laughs) What's your favorite? You know, it's a classic. It's called The Snowy Day, uh, and it was published in the 60s. And Mm -hmm. it's a beautiful picture book that pictures a a Black child having a wonderful snowy day at home. That's lovely. I always give the women superheroes of the Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Frida Kahlo, those books. Madeline, I want to transition us to the topic of mental health related to miscarriage and postpartum, as these are stages of the journey that are often associated with higher anxiety and depression. Can you talk a little bit about this? Postpartum depression affects a significant number of women. A risk factor for postpartum depression and postpartum anxiety is infertility. And so when I work with my patients, I let them know at the very beginning that my goal is to see them throughout their family building process, and that includes well into the postpartum period. Infertility is not the only risk factor. There's a history of mental health, lack of resources and support or family support, your relationship. Those are all risk factors as well. I think it's also important for people to know that men experience postpartum depression and anxiety, and they're more likely to experience PPD and PPA when their partners are. So this is not a women's issue. It's a men and women's issue. Any parent who's going through this transition. One of the things I've noticed over the years talking to friends and also in my own experience is that regardless of what type of mental health support you're looking for, it can sometimes be very challenging to find. And I think for some of our listeners, they may not even be aware that there are people who specialize in helping folks with their family building journey. So I'm wondering, what are some advice you may have for people who either are having trouble finding someone or maybe live in an area where there isn't as much of a density of providers to find someone who can support them with their family journey? Access to mental health care in general is very difficult. In this field, maybe even more so, I think the onus is really on other medical professionals to refer their patients for support when they need it. I wish my fertility patients came to me well before they were struggling. I don't think crisis management is the best mental health care. I think prevention is. And if reproductive endocrinologists or OBGYNs would refer their patients at the beginning of treatment instead of when a patient was at the end of their rope, we would see much improved mental health in the process in general. And the same is true for after the family building process during the postpartum period. I believe that OBGYNs and other providers, GPs, pediatricians need to be looking for these symptoms in their patients. I remember taking a postpartum depression inventory at my OBs. And I know the questionnaire like the back of my hand, I give it out frequently. And it's very easy to lie on it. It asks you if you're suicidal. It asks you if you cry every day. You can easily check no, and the answer is yes. And there was zero follow-up from my provider about the questionnaire. Nobody watched me take it to see if I was looking a little cagey or upset. And so I think there needs to be some more oversight and dedication from all providers to make sure people get access to mental health. For those of us who have to find it on our own, there aren't that many good options. There's some resource sites. There's startups that are offering mental health through text or chat, which I would take with a grain of salt. I think the best thing to do is ask another provider for a referral or a friend who you know who has seen someone for a referral. And the more doctors that are being asked for therapists by their patients, the more they will start to put together a list and start noticing that this is a real issue that needs to be handled by the medical field. One of the things I've talked about with some medical professionals is within our healthcare system, part of the reason that there's no screening for mental health issues often by OBGYNs or primary care physicians is there's a belief, whether or not it's accurate, that the system can't support the number of people who would have to be referred. So it's sort of like, 
we can't diagnose this because what if they can't then afford mental health care or if there's no one who can take them? And so as a result, there's just no screening and it's kind of ignored. I'd love your thoughts on that. That's also very true. I wouldn't have said that before the COVID-19 crisis. I would have said, no, there's a ton of people taking referrals, but I have not been able to refer people to colleagues in months. And part of that is because everybody needs support right now. And part of it is because becoming a therapist, whether it's an MFT or an LCSW or a psychologist, is not easy and it's expensive. And it's typically a very, again, privileged white career. And that makes it harder to make it accessible to different communities. So the doctors are right. I think they're also covering their ass when they say they can't diagnose it because they can't refer. They can diagnose it. It doesn't have to come with a referral that works out, but they do need to do their due diligence and not ignore a diagnosis because they're worried they won't be able to see it through. I would love if you could speak a little bit about this sort of uh, lack of service providers versus the demand. I'll just frame this up with a personal story. Last year, I was looking for support. I've had several therapist relationships in the past that have been positive, but I called 37 providers. Seven called me back. And of the seven that called me back, only three actually took my insurance, maybe. For someone like myself who has a lot of resources, family support, employer support, I was so demoralized and frankly felt like it was irresponsible care um, and a violation of the Hippocratic Oath, not even to get a response to the outreach, that it really got me fired up about this. I understand that our system is a little bit broken right now, but this just felt beyond what is acceptable. And so I'd love to just know what is the conversation in the provider community about this? And this is before COVID. I'll answer that in a few parts. One, I'm so sorry, and I've had the same experience. I called around a couple weeks ago and still haven't heard back. So you're not alone. I can't believe you called 37. That takes a lot of gumption. The insurance system is completely flawed and broken. Again, this is a microcosm of the Bay Area in a way, but also nationally. In the Bay Area, insurance providers do not pay out enough to providers for them to be able to afford to take clients through insurance. We would not be able to afford to live here. And so you might see 37 providers on your insurance list, but none of them are taking new clients. They might have been on that list when they were building their practice because they needed to see people and get going that way, and they were never taken off the list. So many times you are calling a dead end. Is that an excuse for people not returning your calls and telling you that they're not accepting insurance anymore or full? Absolutely not. Is there a conversation in the community about how to handle that? No, it's just another silenced conversation. No one's going to admit to the fact that they're not returning calls from people who are clearly asking to use their insurance. But it is about the bottom line. Therapy is a business as much as it is about helping people. That's not going to be talked about very often. I will say I had a very similar experience and I called a bunch of people two years ago when I was trying to find a new therapist and similarly couldn't reach a lot of people, did reach people and many of the therapists in San Francisco were full. But I think another interesting point that Madeline, we've talked about before and that I think Joanne is related to this is as much as it's a privilege to become a therapist, we also expect so much of them that therapists, if you're working full-time, you're you're seeing a number of patients often on the hour. You have 10 minutes to write down notes, make sure you capture everything, and you're holding a lot of heavy things. And a lot of the therapists who, you know, you graduate from your PsyD, you maybe do a fellowship, and then you're thrown out into private practice with no training whatsoever around business, how to run a business, accounting. And so there's also so much overhead and things that need to be learned. And so I've been curious of some of the startups that are kind of like, we'll do the matching and we'll help the therapist with a lot of this. And I tried out one of the services. And I think, unfortunately, just because there's so many breakdowns in the system, my experience was I'm really happy this company exists to kind of take some of this administrative burden off of the therapist and help. And knowing that all the really good therapists have no spots, there was this sense am I not getting a good therapist or am I not getting someone who can't fill their practice if I'm going through these services? part of my challenge always of working in the healthcare system has been there's so many breakdowns and the incentives are often so wrong. And sometimes when it's a really bad patient experience, 
yes, the provider could do more, but we also ask providers to do so much and it's, it's just challenging. I appreciate your pointing that out. It is difficult to be a therapist and a business person at the same time. Most people do not get into the field of psychology to run a business. Don't always go hand in hand. It sometimes can be a fair assumption that people who are the providers on these startup services are not experienced or they're looking to build their practice. That might not be a bad thing. I personally like to see new physicians because they're closer to the research. They're more eager to figure out what's going on with me. In therapy, it's a little different. The landmark studies we have about psychotherapy outcomes really point to the relationship being the biggest determination of a positive therapy experience, not the practitioner's expertise or the style or how many patients they've seen or how many years they are in practice, but really do you connect with that person. And that could be a person straight out of school with no experience who needs to fill their practice. But I also would be hesitant, especially if I were suffering, to trust my mental health in the hands of somebody who was newer or was for some reason not able to fill their practice. Think if you're looking to explore your own life and engage in some personal growth, that it's really mostly about the connection. You brought up COVID earlier, and this is a topic that Joanna and I have spoken a lot about. I think we started exploring topics around fertility when COVID hit. And so I'm super curious to hear from you of how has COVID impacted maybe patients you also saw, or it sounds like you've seen an influx of people who all of a sudden are in desperate need of support that maybe wouldn't have previously sought out mental health care. COVID has turned mental health upside down. We have all shifted to remote work, which has been a big shock to the system. A lot of therapists worked exclusively in person. Old school therapists would have never entertained the idea of working remotely or virtually. And those same people now are considering exclusively working remotely and never going back into the office. And so it's shifted our way of doing therapy, but it's also shifted our caseloads a lot. I miss my clients tremendously. I see them all online. I wish I could be in the office with them. I'm looking forward to the day I can be. I've seen a lot of therapists, myself included, have old patients, patients who we've terminated our work with for one reason or another, come back for sessions because of the increased stress of COVID. With regards to fertility, it actually hasn't changed that work very much. I was doing a pro bono support group for a fertility clinic in San Francisco when COVID first started in order to support people whose treatments were canceled or postponed because they closed the clinics. And what came out of those groups was that, yes, it was stressful. Yes, people felt like they were getting short shrift by not being able to continue with the cycle, but it also provided them with a break that they weren't going to give themselves otherwise. People going through infertility treatments often will go cycle after cycle and they feel like they're in this hamster wheel and time is not on their side, luck is not on their side, and they just need to keep going and they will not pause even if their body needs to pause and their mind needs to pause. And so when COVID came around and they closed the clinics, they were forced to pause and they were able to step back and say, oh, I actually needed that break. I didn't want it, but I see that I really needed it and I wouldn't have given it to myself otherwise. So in some ways, it was a positive experience, if not also frustrating, especially as we mentioned for the woman who wants to control every aspect of their life, including when their cycles are. I had some patients who were planning to have second children and because of their age and because of COVID, suspended that plan for a while. Other patients are being much more careful in terms of when they start and how they start and their lifestyle leading up to transfers or retrievals now that the clinics are back open. There is a discussion in my Trace Moms group and in general individual sessions about whether it's safe to not go through a treatment necessarily, but to be pregnant during the time of COVID or to deliver to have a newborn. There's just not enough research that is helpful enough. But really, people want to have families and a pandemic does not seem to be stopping anybody from moving forward. It's just changing the way that they do it. Are there any considerations or advice that you might give people who, again, had their rounds paused or maybe are reconsidering their plans because of the timelines around COVID, just generally speaking? I was surprised when the women in the group talked about appreciating the pause. So I might reframe the break for them in that way to say, you might enjoy this time. You might pick up parts of your life that you put on pause. 
which is hard to re-engage in relationships that they might have ignored because they were going through treatments. I, I don't know that anyone can give advice right now on how to deal with COVID. It's such new territory. You mentioned something about some old school providers refusing prior to COVID to see patients virtually and other people really embracing this virtual platform, potentially never returning to the traditional format. That's definitely something that I've always been curious about, given the nature of the session, that it's just two people talking in a lot of instances, or, you know, there's some visual observation and whatnot. What, in your opinion, is the reason why maybe prior to this period of time, people were resistant to meeting with patients virtually? That's an excellent question. There is so much information that we can observe in another person from being in their physical presence that you can't pick up on remotely. I can see you. I can gauge where you are. I can look at your surroundings and get a flavor for your aesthetic because of the room that you're in. But your body language isn't in real time. Your eye gaze is not in real time. We're not exactly looking at each other. You're not picking up on the nuances of anything happening from the shoulders down. It can be really tricky. When you're in the room with someone, there is an energy that kind of crosses between you. A lot of therapists will set their room up so that there's nothing in between the patient and the therapist. There is not a table. There's not another object or books. It's completely empty. The idea is that there aren't any barriers between the two. And now we're remote and we have the barrier of a screen and then the, you know, the city, depending on where they are. And it really does affect, in my opinion, the relationship. So there's that aspect. And then I don't know what it's like on the patient side, but on the provider side, Telehealth is exhausting. I speak louder. I have to speak more clearly. I have to guess when there's going to be an appropriate pause to provide a comment or an insight. It takes a lot more of my energy than it has in the past when we were in a room together. And this has been observed by providers across the country. We're still trying to come up with language for how to describe the phenomenon, but we are all exhausted from managing the same number of patients remotely that we did in person. Thank you so much. You've really shed some light on something that's been on my mind for a long time. And I think in a lot of ways, as we've noticed in other conversations we've been having, COVID is really shaping our culture and our relationships. And there are definitely some silver linings, but I think that a lot of us are reckoning with whether or not this is something that we want to fully embrace into our way of being in the world. For some people, it's really a wonderful option. There are people who who have experienced therapy being much more productive for them because they can do it remotely. They don't have the barrier of getting to an office or switching gears. They're more comfortable at home. They're more comfortable not having to be in someone else's physical presence. They feel like they can open up more. I can't wait to be back in the office, but I think for a lot of people, this is a really good option. Do you anticipate that when you feel safe returning to your office, you'll give patients the choice of whether to do teleappointments or in person? It's a good question. I have been thinking about that. I think I will for two main reasons. One is their health. Right? I wouldn't want anyone to feel frightened or worried about their own physical health by coming into an office. So I would want to give them that choice. The nice thing that's come out of this is I've been able to work with people who are in all parts of California, and they don't have to commute to my office. And that has really been helpful in extending the accessibility and the reach of my particular services. So I would give the option. Yeah, I appreciate My first therapist wouldn't do virtual appointments. It was only in person. And my second, we actually started testing. And I found that I was able to be more vulnerable and I felt more comfortable or safe doing video appointments. And I compare it actually with, I also worked with a life coach and she did calls over Zoom, but with no video, just voice. And her reasoning was she finds that video is just distracting. You're looking at so many things and you're distracted or self-conscious about how do you look? Are they looking at each other? Are we making eye contact versus just talking and speaking your feelings? And it's true. I was trying to understand, is it the different relationship or whatever? And I do think I just have a special relationship with my coach, but I often was questioning, I was like, I can't cry in therapy. And actually, I don't think I, the way I approach therapy is I would basically give an executive summary of my past week of like, here's what I did. And I've already psychoanalyzed myself and here's <laughs> what I think. Um, and, but coaching, I was able to be much more vulnerable and I think really raw and real. And I, I question whether it was the format and not having that video and just voice, but 
I, I think the opportunity for people to test which format allows them to actually feel safer and share is really helpful. I love that it can be different for everybody too. My barometer, and I think this is probably going to show the more sardonic side of me, is that when a patient can cry, it's huge progress. And if you can cry on the phone or over video or in person, that's really telling to where you should be in therapy. I have not had patients cry nearly as much remotely as they will in the room. There is something really kind of sacred and nice about being held in that physical space versus through a screen. It is not as intimate, but for some people, it is easier to your point. I'd be curious your thoughts. For someone who hasn't seen a therapist and is thinking of working with a therapist, what are some of the key questions that you think someone should ask a therapist if they're exploring working together? I err on the side of asking fewer questions. When you are in the room with a therapist, you are not going to be asking them anything, really. You're going to be talking and they're going to be asking you questions. So I think the biggest question is, can I come meet you for a session and see how it goes? I would encourage everybody to shop for a therapist and, and meet a couple so you know who you feel most comfortable with. But maybe you've had a different experience with this, how helpful an interview can be. Because if you understand what their approach is and how much experience you have and where they went to school and if they can address your specific issues, it might not matter in the long run if you're not comfortable with them. Yeah, I think some of the factors I thought were important that I didn't know to ask until later were like cancellation policy. I had a therapist where I had to pay every week and it was really hard to reschedule and that was challenging because it is very expensive or flexibility of rescheduling different times or doing video. For me, the logistics wasn't something I even thought to go into, but it ended up being a big issue of why I switched therapists. And then I think also for me, it was important to ask, what does a typical session look like? My first therapist barely spoke. She really used the whole hour for me to just speak the entire time. Whereas my second therapist was much more of a conversation and there was a reaction and dialogue. And I think actually I get the most out of a coaching relationship, which is more like I've given you the power to hold me accountable to things and call me out on things as opposed to just listening. And that I grow the most through that. And I find that to be the most helpful for me. And I've gotten clear on that's helpful for me. And I don't know that that's helpful for everyone. So a therapist should be transparent about their policies in that first phone call. You might ask a, a simple question like, tell me about the way that you practice, and you'll get a sense of how long-winded they are. The therapist who's going to be more conversation will say, well, what would you like to know? And the therapist who <laughs> who is going to sit back and be more of a blank screen will likely dodge the question or say something like, why don't you just come in and see what it's like to work with me? Those might be huge generalizations, but you can get a pretty good impression over the phone too. Earlier, you alluded to the idea that you had felt like you weren't going to start a family, but that changed mm -hmm. at some point. And if you feel comfortable, I'd love to know what were some things that motivated you to change your mind? I didn't want to have children because I strongly identified as a feminist and still do, but was misguided in what that meant. And so I thought part of my soapbox in being a feminist, especially as a college student, meant that I needed to buck the traditional gender norms, one of which would be having a family. And I was very irritated by older women telling me that I was going to change my mind at some point, which kind of further pushed me towards the I will not do this camp. And then as I got a little older, it became more clear that the reason I didn't want to be a parent wasn't because I didn't want to be a mother, but I didn't want to do it alone. And I had a big fear of being with a partner, but not having a co-parenting partnership that the child rearing would fall to me. And I was equally interested in having a career and a social life. I didn't want to give up that lifestyle either. I fortunately met someone who was very committed to having a family and was able to paint a picture of what a co-parenting relationship looked like that made me comfortable enough to believe that I wouldn't be doing it on my own. And hearing what his fantasy was like made it much easier to consider how I might have a similar fantasy. Thank you so much for sharing that. Our podcast is called Our Bodies, Our Voices. And a question that we like to ask everyone 
is what's one thing that you've learned about your body over the last few years? So there's this concept of the flow state, which it's more heavily researched and discussed in pop psychology a lot currently. And it's this idea of a mental state of bliss or a zone where you're just in this heaven. And what I found about my body is that my flow state is very physical and, and it lives in my body and it's best channeled when dancing, which I probably could have known as a child, but wasn't lucky enough to learn that I loved that until probably my late teens. I am an untrained dancer. I love to Lindy hop, but I just feel like my body is in its best place when I'm dancing. I love that. I think I might also be in a flow state when I dance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was like, actually, I can't stop smiling anytime I dance. So maybe that's true for me too. Mm. Along the same vein, how are you using your voice during this time? It's a complicated time. So it's a big question to ask. But I do think it's an important question now more than ever. As a therapist, I have to be very careful not to insert my own stuff into a session, not to influence the direction of the session or, you know, put my own opinions or project onto a patient unless it serves a clear purpose. But at the present day, we are in a huge crisis socially, politically, philosophically. And so while I can't be very directive in the work that I do, I think I do have a responsibility to use my voice in the therapy setting and to deliberately carve out a space for people to share their experiences of what is happening in our society right now, both with COVID, with Black Lives Matter, with politics. My patients have a lot of shame and guilt, fear, anxiety, and frank apathy about what's happening that I think is essential for them to discuss. And if they're not, I have been bringing it up in the past few weeks. Is there anything that we haven't covered that you think is important as we reflect on the current time, what you do as a professional and the types of pain points and questions that individuals have in these topics? If I could wish for anything just in reflecting on this conversation and our current struggle socially and my particular work, it would be for more minorities, LGBTQ, people of color, men to work in my field. It has historically been all white men. Now it is seemingly all white women. And it just makes it really difficult for people to access this type of care. And I've discussed a little bit of the issues and reasons why it's so hard to get these degrees, but it would be a huge service to everybody if it was more accessible. So for anyone who's listening, who's thinking about a second career, <laughs> there's room in ours for more people. Thank you so much for chatting with us. I always so appreciate your thoughtfulness and willingness to just dive into so many of these topics. Yeah, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for the wisdom you shared and the practical advice. Anytime. Thank you for listening to this episode of Our Bodies, Our Voices podcast with Dr. Madeline Katz. We touched on many topics related to mental health. As COVID-19 continues to spread across the U.S., this episode is a good reminder to take care of yourself and to reach out for support if you're struggling emotionally. To hear more episodes or to get in touch, please visit ourbodiesourvoices.com. Catch you later.